Good morning. I'm Brad DeLong, and this, this is my morning coffee. Here I'm going to ask and answer a question I asked a much shorter version of at the excellent Berkeley How Did Tax Reform Happen Symposium. The question was from for Alan Auerbach. It was hinted in his, at in his slide that contrasted the analyses of the tax cut from economists with those from those he called, quote, economists, unquote. It was also hinted in David Kamen's slide, the one that contrasted, first, the analyses of policy shops with models, including the highly unreliable tax foundation. Yes, crowding out is a thing. No, the long run does not come in 10 years. Yes, it is extremely hard to believe how anyone could both claim that crowding out is not a thing and that the long run comes in 10 years and expect to be taken seriously or even look at themselves in the morning. And second, the all of these policy shops that have found very small growth effects with the second group, the unmotivated and unjustified claims of the Trump administration. Now, there are two problems. The first is that David Cameron's slide omitted a number of estimates of the effect that were higher. And the second is that Allen's slide omitted the fact that the most absurd estimates – those even higher than the Tax Foundation, came not from, quote, economists, unquote, but from economists, that is, Ph.D. economists with tenured appointments at places like Princeton, Harvard, Columbia, and Stanford. We had, first, the claim by Stanford's John Taylor, Mike Boskin, John Kogan, and George Schultz, joined by Columbia's Glenn Hubbard, Princeton's Harvey Rosen, Harvard's Robert Barrow, plus Larry Lindsay and Douglas Holtzikin, all claiming that the tax cuts would boost GDP by 3% in the long run, and that the long run might come in as few as 10 years. Second, we had the claim by 100-odd economists, led by James C. Miller III, Douglas Holtz-Eakin, Charlie Calamiris, of, and Jagdish Bagwati of Columbia, who backtracked, saying he thought it was standard practice to sign letters that contained claims with which one did not agree. Jagdish, that's not standard practice. They were claiming not just such rapid growth that the tax cuts would pay for themselves, but that sophisticated economic models showed that the tax cut would generate such rapid growth that the, quote, macroeconomic feedback generated will be more than enough to compensate for the static revenue loss, unquote. Third, three of the nine, Douglas Holtz-Eakin, Larry Lindsay, and Glenn Hubbard of Columbia, Susan Collins, Republican Maine, believes, assured her that the tax cut was likely to pay for itself. They claim they did not say that and are not responsible for Susan Collins's misapprehension. Newsflash. When you talk to a senator, you are responsible for what the senator hears, not for the loopholes you preserve to mislead them so that you can sleep better at night. You do not sleep better at night. Fourth, one of the nine, Robert Barrow of Harvard, doubled down and said that the long-run boost to GDP is not 3%, but 7%. Michael Boskin of Stanford then endorsed his analysis. Robert Barrow appears to have since cut his effect of the effects of the law as written by nine-tenths. See Barrow and Furman, 2018, at the Brookings Panel on Economic Activity. Mike Boskin has not, to my knowledge, backed off of the 7% number. The net effect of all of these, quote, analyses, unquote, by not economists, unquote, economists, unquote, but by economists of note and reputation, albeit professional Republicans, was to put the Trump administration estimates in the middle of the distribution, rather than way out on the fringe. 
and this mattered for the debate in the public sphere. It led, among other things, to this outraged cry from Benjamin Applebaum, quote, I am not sure there is a defensible case for the discipline of macroeconomics if they can't at least agree on the ground rules for evaluating tax policy. What does it mean to produce the signature of a hundred economists in favor of a given proposition when another hundred will sign their names to the opposite statement? How does Harvard, for example, justify granting tenure to people who purport to work in the same discipline and publicly condemn each other as charlatans? How are ordinary people, let alone members of Congress, supposed to figure out which tenured professors are the serious economists? Unquote. I agree with Alan Auerbach that it would be wonderful if we had strong, nonpartisan analytical institutions to serve as referees, but I want to ask Alan, what marching orders do you give us to get there? How can we get there when we see such egregious behavior, not just from, quote, economists, unquote, who serve political masters and do not know how to do analyses to get the incidents right, but from economists who know well or knew well how to do analyses to get the incidents right, but who now no longer care? who express a conscious indifference to the truth. I'm Brad DeLong, and this has been my morning coffee.